Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Is we, we organize ourselves uh, at, the, at the smallest level into local churches, and then groups of churches we call districts, and then groups of districts, particularly here in North America, we refer to as regions or educational regions. And each one of our regions has a university that it prays for, that it supports, that it sends uh, students to, and sometimes some professors as well. It's our privilege this morning to have with us a representative of Northwest Nazarene University. Um, When I was a little bitty boy, I mean just a tiny little baby, I remember seeing Fred Fullerton doing ministry, and um, he's going to... He's going to come, and um, now I'm afraid to hand him the microphone because, you know, paybacks and all of that. Fred and I have become friends because we've, uh, we've been privileged to work together for a few years now while he's been at NNU, and I've been in local churches on the region. Fred is the vice president of spiritual and leadership development at the university. He also is the director of the Wesley Center, which is an important part of our university that helps keep us focused on who we have been historically who we are today, so that we'll know who we are in the future. Fred, this is a congregation that supports Northwest Nazarene University in all those ways that I spoke, and why don't you talk to us about the university this morning? Why don't we welcome them the way we know how? Thank you. Thank you, you, Pastor Cliff. I know that you're looking forward to the word being preached by your pastor in just a few moments, and I am as well. I have deep respect for your pastor, and he's a leader on this region, and he was a significant contributor to the pastor's conference this summer called Palcon, and we had some 540 clergy and their spouses and their kids on campus for three days back in June, and Cliff was on the planning committee and was incredibly supportive and creative, and uh, you know that's the way he is. So I'm grateful for his work uh, and his friendship. It's good to see that you've grown up since... uh, Last I saw you. Um, I love seeing all these young people down front. I love the intergenerational nature of this congregation. I love the energy when I walked into this sanctuary with the pre-service worship music. And it was a privilege to worship with you this morning. Thank you, worship team. And uh, thank you for your engagement with your community. A thousand people at this recent event that you had. The Thanksgiving things that you're doing. Uh, You are being the hands and feet of Jesus, and I give God praise and commend you for living out the gospel here in Lewiston. So thanks be to God for you. When I went to college, uh, I was an angry young man because my dad died when I was a freshman in high school, and I ended up on a Nazarene campus where my three older sisters had gone, and I didn't want to be there because I was still angry at God because he didn't answer my prayer to heal my dad from cancer. But I went there because the state of Illinois had uh, scholarships for kids who had lost parents for various reasons at that time. And so I landed there my freshman year and uh, majored in accounting and uh, did horribly and was not uh, doing well spiritually, obviously. I kept going to church my uh, rest of my high school career in order to have access to the car. Mom said, you want to drive the car? You go to church. Well, let me think about that. <laughs> No-brainer there. But I role-played Christianity. I grew up in the church, and so I knew all the right answers to give. But in my heart of hearts, I had not yielded my life back to God because I was angry. I felt like God had failed my family. Now, in reality, we know that God does not cause cancer. That God doesn't bring evil into our lives. But for a 15-year-old, that's 
kind of why I felt that somehow God turned his back on us. So I go to a Nazarene campus, I sit through chapel services, and the Holy Spirit slides in one morning next to me and says, so how's this working for you, this uh, kind of doing life on your own? And being a farm kid, you know you can do life on your own. You're out there on a tractor, or you're out there in a field, and you're out there by yourself, and you can get along and, and get by on your own. But it wasn't working. A long story short, I responded to an invitation to an altar of prayer one morning in chapel, and life has never been the same since. The Lord gave me a verse that year, freshman year, uh, was when that took place, a spring semester of my freshman year. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Lean not on your own understanding, and in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will mess up your life. That's not how it ends. He will make your paths straight, or he will guide you. And God has done that in my journey for these many years, and I give God praise. And so, young people, I'm looking at you. A long time ago, I sat where you sat. I heard older people come up and talk about the college university, and I went, oh, please. And um, so maybe you're doing that now, maybe not. But um, let me say this. Somebody said a long time ago, to a bunch of kids, I was a part of a group. The dream that God has for your life is so much bigger than a dream you have for yours. Give God a chance to unfold that dream for you. So 40-some years later, I'm saying the same thing to you. Because that person was right. God's dream for you is so much bigger than what you may have in your brain right now. So give God a chance. Whether you land at NNU or not is not the issue. The issue is whether you allow God to unfold that dream in your heart and life. Thank you, congregation, for your prayers, your support. Greetings from President Joel Pearsall, who was inaugurated about a month ago as our 13th president. Uh, He'll be up at uh, the district gathering along with myself for pastors the next two days at Ross Point Camp uh, for a very special time of uh, equipping and uh, resourcing. And I just want want you to know that God is... Moving on our campus, good things are happening. Your prayers are being answered. There's a wonderful spiritual tone on campus. That This is my eighth year in this assignment now, and this is the most um, blessed and Holy Spirit-driven semester I've been a part of. And I can't figure that out other than God answers prayer and God is at work, okay? So let's turn our hearts to preparation for the proclamation of the word from your pastor. Thank you, pastor, for this opportunity, and God bless you. When I lived up in Montana, I met a rather interesting cast of people. Whitefish was, and still is, a resort community, and so there were some old-time whitefish folks there who, whose families largely had, had earned their living off of logging and forest product dollars. But whitefish also attracted a bunch of folks from all over the country and all over the world who just wanted to live in one of North America's beautiful places and have access to a a ski hill in a national park. 
If you get much outside the city limits of Whitefish, though, you enter into the real wilds of North America. And up in the middle of the Flathead National Forest was this place called Potter's Field Ranch. And uh, it had been formerly known as the Dog Creek Ranch. I don't know why you changed names of ranches, but they did. And I met a group of people who were living on, uh, on Potter's Field Ranch. They were uh, some folks who were part of a movement called Calvary Chapel. And as it turns out, they were running a school at Potter's Field Ranch, a discipleship school. You couldn't get college credit for it. You couldn't turn it into a job. It was just a place where a guy who I can best describe as a spiritual commando um, said to people, if you really spiritually want to get whipped into shape and become somebody who lives wholeheartedly as a follower and servant of Jesus Christ, pay me thousands of dollars and I'll show you how to do it. And they did. They would, they would come, groups and groups of them would come for four, five, six months at a time, and they would head to the school up in the middle of the Flathead National Forest where uh, Chet would whip their bodies into shape and whip their minds into shape and then would coax their spirits along and sometimes drive their spirits a little bit. Part of the whole process at Potter's Field Ranch was, was one week in each term, which was referred to as Crucify the Flesh Week, and you, um, you got on board with what was going on real quick there, or life got difficult. And in Crucify the Flesh Week, Chet was trying to teach the people that we human beings are, are part flesh, and we're part spirit, and we're part soul, and God connects with our spirits constantly, and our souls, when, when we'll get dialed in, but our bodies are constantly interfacing with the world around us, which is fallen, and our, and our flesh is kind of broken and doesn't work right either. And, and because of that, the flesh kind of tends to drag us towards sin. And so Chet thought it would be best if you, if you just kind of put the hammer to the flesh. And so for one week, crucify the flesh week, every term, he would just say to the students, we're going to make you uncomfortable in every way we can physically until your flesh surrenders and your spirit and God's spirit can now have mastery. Seemed like a good idea to a guy who was coming in to teach but not having to submit to all of the uh, Crucify the Flesh week. But I, uh, I constantly saw students who looked like they were wrung out because, uh, you know, it was sleep deprivation and fasting and, and all kinds of things, not by force. Everybody signed up for this. But apparently, um, they weren't getting the results that they wanted. Because one term, I went up there again by, by Chet's request. He said, I want you to lecture for three hours on Friday night uh, on the subject of blood covenant and seven hours on Saturday. I thought, ooh, t- t- ten hours of, of lecturing. Hmm, okay. So I did all my homework, and I got up there. And typically, the students would see me, and they seemed to be happy about, hey, Pastor Cliff. And, and this time when I got up there, there were, there were a few, hey, Pastor Cliff. But uh, from a bunch of people who were the funniest, crustiest-looking people I'd ever seen in my life. Because every student that walked by me had this weird, crusty, flaky thing going on in their hair that was visible from like 30 yards. I mean, it was bad. It was bad, bad. And so I'm, I'm kind of, and you know, clothes that looked like they needed an oil change. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. <laughs> so I, I found Chet on the campus 
and said, Chet, what is going on? He said, well, Crucify the Flesh Week, uh, it seemed like they were enjoying it too much, so I had to up the ante. I said, well, what'd you do? He said, well, um, people get used to fasting real quick-like, and you can cope with losing sleep, but um, if you're a North American, you like to shower a lot. And he said, so I told him that this is now crucify the flesh for however long. Yeah, for however long he decided, and he wasn't going to let him know. And to make them more miserable from the beginning so they could really get the most out of it, he, they, they smeared peanut butter all in their hair, just caked it all in there, which drove them nuts. And so I, I was thinking Chad had probably lost his mind at this point. I'm standing there talking to him, and one of the students came over and recognized me. He said, hey, Pastor Cliff, and, and he threw his arms around me. <laughs> and um, Fred, these people know that I can gut an elk and eat a sandwich at the same time, but people germs, Yeah. So he throws his arms, and he's wearing a, a sleeveless T-shirt. And so as he comes in, I noticed that, well, it wasn't just the hair on his head that had peanut butter. <laughs> and he wraps me up in this big old hug. And I looked at Chet, and I said something that reminds me of our story for today said, it is the fourth day, and he stinketh. It's, uh, it was bad. It smelled like somebody's making peanut butter cheese around there, if you know what I mean. Yeah. That was pretty effective, Fred. Did you hear that? Yeah. yeah. The moral of this story is don't go to Potter's Field Ranch. We're trying to get a fresh look at Jesus, right? I mean, we, if, if you are, are just checking out God, church, Jesus, spirituality, religion, all of that stuff, then, then probably any church that you go to that's going to preach about Jesus, you'll get some sort of fresh idea about him, um, this one included. If you've grown up in church, if you've spent much time in church uh, in, in recent years, then, then probably you have this kind of cloudy view of Jesus because the New Testament, the, the last third of the Bible, let's say, starts with four different life stories of Jesus, and each one of them tells their story from a little bit different perspective. And so much of what you and I, church folks, think or think that we know about Jesus is this kind of amalgamation from all of those, those profiles of Jesus kind of laid on top of one another. But, but we're trying our best uh, this fall to get a fresh look at Jesus, and we're doing that by taking one of those Gospels, this one written by his, one of Jesus' close friends named John, and we're just isolating it from the rest, and we're going we're gonna to read John and see how a close friend might describe Jesus to his other friends. And so uh, the story has gone like this. Uh, John, for some reason, didn't think that we needed to know about Christmas, so he lops off that part of Jesus' life story, and, and he just thrusts him onto the, onto the stage about the time that he turns 30 years old, and there's this, this strange spiritual revival happening in the southern part of Jesus' nation. It's happening outside of the center of power in Jerusalem so that all of the folks who thought they were in charge religiously would have to come just like everybody else and find their way out to this place in the wilderness with this guy who looked a little bit crazy and preached in a costume every single time, was out there kind of ranting and raving and saying, you need to stop sinning. You got to take care of your sin problem. And, and he would even preach about political figures and how they should stop sinning. Can I get an amen for all the people who wish our political figures would, yeah, yeah. 
Um, none of them are watching this morning, by the way. So, um, people got real excited about a, a, a crazy man who would point his finger at the politicians and say, you guys need to knock it off up there. And then, but then he, he brought his finger right down to everybody else who was around and said, you guys too, you need, to, you need to take care of your sin problem. But then one day, God the Holy Spirit, God, God the Father stopped him and said, wait, 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 wait. Wrong message. You need to change the message. The message is this. I'm going to take care of the sin problem. I'm going to send somebody into the world who is my, my, my perfectly equipped and empowered person to take care of the sin problem for every human being on the planet. And so that you will know exactly who he is, I'm going to give you a sign that uh, just simply can't be mistaken. At some point, when this guy shows up in, in front of you, John, I'm going to split the heavens open. The Holy Spirit is going to come down, and he's going to land on a person like a dove lands on its perch. You can't miss it. So John's out there preaching his message, and Jesus, turns out to be his cousin, shows up, and heavens open. Holy Spirit comes down and lands on him, and John instantly changes his message to, there's the person who takes the sins of the world away. Had a bunch of followers. He said, you should start following that Jesus. And so Jesus' ministry was off to this rip-roaring start. And what did he do? He fled the scene. He headed right back up, just as he did again and again and again throughout his ministry. Every time his ministry started to go well, he'd create a PR problem for himself and leave the crowds and take off. So he headed back up to the north part of the country where he grew up. And there, his mom says, it's time. He said, it's not time, mom. She said, oh, it's time. And she forced him to perform a miracle to help out this young struggling couple at their wedding who'd run out of wine. And John was watching, and he said, I'm really not that interested in the wine. I'm interested in a person who can turn water into wine, and I think, it, I think it indicates that he's God. And from there on, John tells the story, and we call the Gospel of John, it's a series of signs. John doesn't like the word miracle because we get caught up in the miracle and what it did for the person, which was great. But John said, I don't think that's why Jesus was doing what he was doing. He was trying to help us understand who he is. He's God. And so all the rest of John's story is this series of, of miracles for people that are signs of who Jesus is. And so John presents it as this building case where the evidence is getting stronger and stronger to convince people of exactly who Jesus claimed he was and is. God come in the flesh. Today's story, John presents it as the clincher. This is how Jesus is going to prove who he is. It's a fantastic story. Instead of putting it on the screen, I want you to close your eyes and imagine it. Have you used your imagination in a while? Picture this story because it's incredible. Lord, I'm asking that you turn the lights on for us. As I read these words... Holy Spirit, one more time, breathe life into the scriptures and into our hearts thereby. <laughs> Speak to us, because we're listening. Jesus has just gotten in an argument. People saying, I'm not sure that you really are who you claim to be. And Jesus kind of got in their faces enough that... Um, they decided they would lay hands on him. Once again, they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left them. 
He went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John was first baptizing and stayed there a while. And many followed him. John didn't perform miraculous signs, they remarked to one another. But everything he said about this man has come true. And many who were there believed in Jesus. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. When Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judah were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, there's 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there's danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, my friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I'll go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he'll rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever really die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher's here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. And when the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? 
But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. Lord, he's been dead four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up into heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a head cloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Many of the people who were there with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. This is the word of the Lord. As John has been building his case, he's been... He's been highlighting miracles that Jesus worked that were of increasingly extraordinary nature, from the kind of things that folks might think initially were kind of magic tricks to the kind of things that you you just can't fake because they were done openly and in front of large crowds and in, in, in the kind of setting in which you'd have been busted if you were trying to fake it. It went from working in the kitchen where nobody could see to putting on a kitchen kind of miracle in front of 15 to 20,000 people. 15 to 20,000 miracles. 15 to 20,000 people who had nothing and then their bellies were full and had leftovers to send back. Pretty convincing kind of stuff. And yet people would say, "Eh, I was kind of convinced yesterday, but I I don't know about today. The same people who ate the sandwiches. This is going somewhere. John, Jesus, together, taking us somewhere to this place, this point of inevitability where where Jesus is going to perform a sign that is unmistakable. And you either have to believe it or reject it. What's interesting is in the passage that I just read to you, there were a number of people, pretty religiously informed and savvy people who said, we no longer question whether the guy works miracles. They really happen. They just don't believe in him. Hmm. As I read the story, I read the story a lot of times, I realized then I always look at the wrong thing in here. It's a pretty incredible moment when, when Jesus resurrects a man from the dead. Fred talked to us earlier about begging God for his dad's life. God said no. A year and a half ago, Lost my little sister. God said no. He said it to a bunch of you as well. 
All the signs were that God had said no with a sense of finality to Martha and Mary. They'd moved on past the funeral. It's days later when all of us live in the fog that happens when we have to reimagine life now. And Jesus shows up and resurrects the man from the dead. And it says many people believed when they saw that. Yeah, uh huh. And that's what I usually focus on is, is this proof that Jesus is God. Because only God could bring people back from the dead. And I think that's at least one of the points John's trying to make in this story. If, if you have questions about how a man can make fish sandwiches for 15,000, let's just, let's just take all the logistics aside and say resurrect one person from the dead and it should prove it to anybody who sees it or reads a credible report of it. But I think that I have often stopped there and said, good, I have this proof that makes me feel better about my belief in Jesus that I've had since I was a little boy. And as I read this week, I saw something that I think God definitely wanted me to see this time and that maybe I've just missed before. Is that Jesus was angry and acted in anger. He shows up. The very first thing that happens, Martha, the take charge person in the house, we know from reading other stories of her, comes charging not just out of the house, all the way out of town, finds Jesus before he gets there and says, listen, I know you could have done something and you didn't. You could have and you didn't. It was an unpleasant moment. And before Jesus can speak, she says, and I still think you can, because the Father will give you anything you ask. And again, creating his own PR nightmare, Jesus starts to give her a religious lecture about the resurrection at the end of time, she thinks. He says, your brother's going to rise again. I know, when everybody else does, and that doesn't help me today when I miss him. Jesus, probably a bit, you know, brought up short, tries to reassure her. She turns. She goes and gets her sister, who people wonder if maybe she had fallen in love with Jesus by the way she went on and on and on about him. And... uh she comes charging out of the house and out of the city too, and she finds Jesus, but instead of the anger, she just collapses in tears and says, why didn't you come? Why didn't you do something? And, and some people followed her. You heard as I read the story, and they're, they're doing what people do when you grieve together. You, you cry too. And the response of Jesus that we read about in the text was that something began building and brewing down inside of him and came boiling up to the surface as he spoke. And it's anger. It says a deep anger welled up within his spirit and that his spirit experienced something else too. It was troubled. Anger and being troubled. And just a minute later, he bursts in tears. 
How about the hands of the people who in moments of acute grief have gone from anger to sobbing in a second? Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. You know what I think we get from this story? I think we get a Jesus who is proven to be God. He resurrects a man from the dead. We also get a Jesus who's proven to be a real human being. Because he's angry and he's troubled and he's sad. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the, the picture is painted, not painted for us, it's kind of doctrinally explained that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. But it's in, it's in this picture, it's in this story where we get to see both God and man wrapped up in Jesus. I don't know how he does the God stuff. That, that part still remains a mystery to me and is supposed to. But the questions that many times push me and challenge me are, the, are the, the, the what and the why of Jesus' humanity. Why and how did he do the things that he did? And in this story, it says there was something that lit the fuse in the old boy that day, and the anger came welling up, and at the same time, there was something shaky and not right about his soul, and the next moment collapses into tears. I wonder what it was. I think I know what it was. It says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and laying at his feet, and the the people, the other mourners, wailing, that he got angry. Why? Was he he saying, well, guys, it's four days after the funeral. I mean, suck it up. It's time to, you know, get back to life. No. Remember when we studied the first part of this book and we learned that Jesus is this eternally existent being. He is the God who created this world. He created this world to be a place that worked. He created human beings to live in a place that fit them and in which they got along well together. And and life was supposed to be the rule of the day. When humans rebelled against God, it, it forever altered the, not just our relationship with one another and our relationship with God, but it altered the way this world works so that now death became this inescapable reality that will work its way into the lives of every single one of us. Time and time again, we will lose people, and one day, whoever's left will mourn for us. And this holy God who had created a perfect world and perfect humans, looked at it and went, it's not supposed to be like this. It was never supposed to be like this. And there was something in his, in his, in his spirit that just burst into flame over the deal. How many times have you seen anger then harnessed and turned into something powerful? I have, and that's what we see here. There was this brewing that came up from within him. He was angry what he was seeing, the, the reaction, the hurt in the lives of people who were experiencing the brokenness of this world that he never intended. But it also says his heart was troubled. Why was his heart troubled? I think, I think that the appropriate, perfect human response, whenever we see something that isn't what God the Father wanted, There should be something in our heart that goes, that's not right. 
Maybe anger isn't always the right response, but, but our hearts should get troubled whenever we see something that we know wasn't the Father's wish for us, for others in this world. And so Jesus' godly anger comes to full boil and, and, and his humanity right there alongside it going, yeah, this just shouldn't be. And the next moment he burst into tears. He was so sad that his friend had died, and he was so sad that his two other friends had to live through it. And so sad that this other community of people gathered around them had also suffered a loss of faith and for a while a loss of hope and, and were probably somewhere trapped inside their own anger and their own troubled hearts. And on the heels of all that humanity, Jesus brings the full power of his godhood to bear on the situation. He says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And he did. Jesus' response to all of the brokenness, to all of the troubledness, to all of the sorrow, was to act compassionately to the people around him. Hey, Christ followers, you're probably taught when you're this big, it's wrong to get angry. It's not. Choose wisely what you get angry over. But there's, there's a right hour for anger. When your heart is troubled, what do you do? Sink into yourself? Take it out on other people? When you're sad, what do you do? Hide? Jesus' response to, to all of this was to get his arms around the people and say, all right, show me where he is. To bark some orders to expedite the situation, but then to respond in a compassionate way by entering into the community. Instead of Jesus running off by himself so nobody would see him cry, he gets his arms around the other weepers. And together they went and he did something compassionate for them. When you find your humanity deeply torn and disturbed, you are going to find a tendency to run and hide. Followers of Jesus understand that we have a holy example before us. And the moments of, of the greatest trouble in our lives and the trouble in the lives of the people around us, our response is to enter into the community and to act compassionately. Hey, listen, I want to ask you to please remember this sermon, this one, and this point of this sermon Because there's probably going to be some flare-ups this week, huh? There's going to be some some, some spilling out of anger and hatred, you think, maybe? How How about instead of us dumping gas on the flamethrower, how about we, the people of God, enter into our community and act compassionately toward people who are losing hope? But I think there's one last lesson in here. Two points is that as Jesus did what he did, he did it to invite us to become like him at the level of our hearts and our character. Jesus gives us an example of what human beings can do when they are fueled, motivated, driven, carried along, empowered by God's Holy Spirit. 
See, Jesus is the perfect example of God and humanity doing life together. And what Jesus does in in this miracle and in the others is to invite us to become like him. Maybe not miracle workers, but people partnered with God to live within the mess and act compassionately toward the people around us. He invites us to become like him, a man full of God. He also invites us to act like him. He empowers us to do the acts of compassion when maybe our hearts are running away with us. He he empowers us, gives us the help. We're going to learn about it in weeks to come. Pastor Bill and Pastor Blake are going to preach the last two sermons in this series. One of them is going to tell you about a promise that Jesus makes that makes all of the example of Jesus possibility for you and me. Maybe you'll remember that a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we learned about Jesus' worst sermon ever, <laughs> the one where he ran off his gigantic following. Remember what he said to him that day? Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you, you just, you can't, you don't have what it takes to go with me. It's the weirdest kind of empowerment. It's the weirdest kind of food. Here, flesh and blood, mine. Really, Jesus, we like the fish sandwiches. We'd prefer the fish sandwiches. He said, no more fish sandwiches. He said, I want to empower you by coming to be inside of you. I'm stealing the thunder from Bill or Blake, okay? Holy Spirit, come. The invitation today, as, as we serve Holy Communion, is twofold. Would you like to become like Jesus? A man or a woman so full of God that sometimes we can't tell whether you're God or man? That's one invitation. The other invitation is, would you like to start acting like him? Would you like to be fueled by God's Holy Spirit in spite of what you feel at times to go and do acts of compassion and mercy? Maybe, maybe you're at a place in your life where you'd really like to receive an act of compassion and mercy. But today, would you accept the invitation to instead be the ones who go? Worship team's going to come. Pastors are going to come and... and uh, serve the elements. Um, Pastor Kaylee is uh, ready to wait on you if you can't come forward or if you would like um, the gluten-free elements. Um, but So catch her eye. She's going to be standing here front and center, and if you wave at her. Say it again. Going to leave them up front. Okay. Gluten free is going to be up front. If you can't come up here for mobility issues, though, then Pastor Kaylee will be glad to, to wait on you. Just, uh, just give her a wave. But let, let's pray. And uh, if you would like to receive, if you'd like to take Jesus up on his invitations today, then why don't you come and in faith partake of these emblems of his body and his blood? Say, so Jesus, I don't understand how you do it. I don't understand why you did it this way. But I. I want you and me to do it together, this life.
these acts of compassion. I want to be like you, a person full of God. Lord, as we bow our heads and hear this invitation, we're going to choose now whether to accept it. If we do and we go through this strange ceremony with you, will you please come and make good on the promise? Would you take this little bit of faith that we have and would you fill us with power? Would you take our unbelief to kind of weld it together with, with our faith and make it work for you in such a fashion that we find ourselves being remade in your image and able to live like you and for you as believable examples of your love to the world around us. Some will be reaching your direction for the very first time today. Meet them, Lord, in a way they can understand. Some coming back to you for the thousandth time asking for a fresh touch. I ask that you would meet them as well. Feed us. In your name we pray, amen.